As has already been mentioned, now it's easy to say good morning. Because we moved everything up half an hour. We're not landing exactly on 12, so it's 11.29. I don't have to look at my clock now. I can say good morning every time I get up here. Don't have to worry about saying good afternoon. <clears throat> and having to recant for whatever reason. Um, it's good, good to see everyone here. Um, if you guys haven't met Brian, please meet Brian before you leave. Um, if you have any sense of how much I love you guys, I love Brian the same way. He's a brother in Christ. I spent time getting to know him and his family in South Africa. Um, he's uh, leaving out very early in the morning from Atlanta, but uh, he'll be in the States for a while. Um, so he's still adjusting to the time change, <laughs> uh, which is rough. Um, if you'd like to open your Bibles, uh, let's open to Genesis chapter 6 first. This is going to be kind of a survey lesson where we're going to bounce through several passages. Um, and I'm going to start with a joke, which I never do. I don't even tell jokes in like personal life. I don't know what it is about me, but I never remember jokes. You know, so when someone tells me a joke I've heard, I'm like, oh yeah, I've heard that. And then the next day I, I won't remember it. But this is one that's kind of stuck with me. Um, you know, there's this, there's this banker... And it's one of these, you know, if you picture it, a small town bank, but it's kind of these three-story buildings. You know, they got the offices upstairs. Not, not a real big building, just kind of your, your, your town bank. And, and the town floods. And this banker, he's a Christian. I mean, he's, he's a believer, right? So anyway, he, he stays behind. He makes sure everybody gets out and gets to safety. But, but he he's, gets stuck in the bank, and he runs up onto the second story, and the waters keep rising, and he... You know, he keeps poking his head out the window to see if there's somebody coming, you know, somebody coming by. But eventually he ends up on the roof, and the waters keep rising, and this boat comes by and says, Hey, I'm here to, I'm here to pick you up and save you. He said, Well, you know what? I've decided I think God's going to save me. So I'm not going to get in your boat. And the, the, the boat driver eventually leaves. He's got other people to go check on, so he takes off. The second boat comes by. You know, the waters are, are still higher. He tells him the same thing. The guy says, I'm here, to, I'm here to take you to dry land. I'm here to take you to safety. And the banker, you know, the guy says, God is going to save me. I'm convinced that God is going to save me. Um, so I'm not going to get in your boat. Third one comes by. I mean, that's how jokes go, right? There's always three of something. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Anyway, third boat comes by, same story. And he refuses, and the waters keep rising, and he drowns. He, he, he actually, he, dry, he dies. So, you know, he's, he's in Abraham's bosom, right? The angels we come and carry him to Abraham's bosom. And, and you know, Abraham or God or whoever you want to put into your joke, you know, Peter, asks him and says, all right, look, like, why didn't you get in the boats? And... And his response was a question, why didn't you save me? And the response was, I sent the boats. I sent those people. <laughs> right? God, God's response then was that I was saving you. I, I tried three times to save you. And you didn't get in the boat. So, so that's why you died. Um, I, I, want to, I want to look through Scripture, and this is going to be a very quick survey. I want to look through Scripture at how God uses humans to, to do His work. And sometimes questions that we, 
we should ask about the text that we don't ask because we read the text and then we're like, yeah, that's what happened. And then we walk out into regular life and we're like, okay, why doesn't God do this for me? Whereas if we had just looked in the text, we would be like, oh, that's why God doesn't do this for me. Right? We maybe have some indication of how, why God separates himself from the tasks that we do and the tasks that he does. And the first one I want to look at is the most obvious, well, one of the most obvious ones for me is Noah's Ark. Genesis chapter 6. Um, if, you, if you look in, in Gen, I mean, you, again, you guys know the story. I'm, I don't have to rehash the entire story of Noah and, and all the background. But if you look in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 6, God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Verse 14, Make for yourself... An ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms. You shall cover it inside and out with pitch. I'm not going to read the rest of the instructions. Right? There's, there's all of these detailed instructions. Well, let me, let me give you another disclaimer here. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. I'm not asking you to answer out loud, but I am asking you to answer up here as we go through this. Who designed the ark? Well, God designed the ark. Well, why didn't he build it? You, I mean, you, you can't possibly think that God can't build an ark. He spoke the, the universe into existence. We know God can build an ark. And he probably wouldn't have had to chop down any trees to do it. <laughs> I mean, I'm being kind of facetious, but, if, but I, I think we need to ask these questions of the text. Like, how far do we go? How, how much could God have done? Why did... Why did he have to send water? Why couldn't he just... I mean, have, have you guys seen that, uh, this movie where this guy snaps his finger and like half of, the, half of the beings in the universe all dissolve into like dust or something? It's, it's, a, it's a comic book thing. Anyway, this guy, he gets this, this powerful glove and he, or whatever, and he can snap his fingers and kill people. I mean, they just don't exist anymore, right? Why didn't God just do that with the earth? Why, why did he send a flood? Right? I mean... I think it's, we can ask questions that can be answered, but the reason for asking these kinds of questions is to question our own assumptions about how God acts and what he does, right? It forces us to say there are, there are answers to the questions I don't know. There are, there are answers to the questions I don't understand, right? But I can't force on God my assumption of what he should do because if I was in Noah's position, I would have said, well, why don't you build it? I mean, I wouldn't have been like, in a disrespectful manner, I really would have asked, why am I building this ark? Like, why aren't you building this ark? You just told me all the instructions, like the dimensions, and it needs to be gopher wood. Well, I mean, you have access to gopher wood. You're God. God didn't build the ark. And I would suggest to you that if Noah didn't build it, he would have died. We don't know that. I mean, I can't be dogmatic about it, right? But that seems like a pretty good pattern. Look in, look in one, one chapter over, and then we'll go on to the next example. Genesis chapter 7, verse 16. I think there is something to pick up here from this one verse. Uh, it's talking about the animals that entered, okay? Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. Which is another interesting thing altogether. God commanded Noah, and yet the animals are the ones that entered. But anyway, 
Those who entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God commanded, and the Lord closed it behind him. The Lord closed the door. I would suggest one thing we can learn from Noah's Ark is that God does those things that man can't do. I don't think God, or I don't think Noah could have closed that door. If you read about the size of the door, the size of the ark, I don't think Noah could have closed it. I don't know that for sure. But what I do know for absolute certain is that God is the one who closed it. So, one thing I would suggest that we learn from here, God expects us to do the things that we have the capacity to do. And He takes care of the rest. Even if you don't think you have the capacity, if He tells you you have the capacity, well, it's kind of a done deal. <laughs> you have the capacity. doesn't matter if you believe what He tells you. Like once God says something, it's true. It doesn't matter if you believe it. right? Your, your disbelief of the truth doesn't make it a lie. So when we, you know, when we apply this to the New Testament and what we're commanded, when He tells you, right, flee temptation. I don't have the capacity to flee temptation. Yeah, you do. The reason I know you do is because he told you to do it. Right? Um, that's kind of how being deity works. He knows you better than you know yourself. He created you. He can see through you. All the way through, front to back, top to bottom. So when he says do something, it's because you have the capacity to do it. And, right, if you're in Noah's position, you're like, okay, I'm going to build this. But man, that door is really big. Like, that door's big. How am I going to close that door, right? That could have been a question that he had. We're not, give, we're not privy to every, all his interactions with God. But it didn't excuse him from making the door smaller. And he, should, he shouldn't have done that. should have made the door whatever specifications were given him. Or to not build the ark. I don't understand how I'm going to close this door. So I'm going to stand here until I get an answer. You don't do that with God. He says, build the ark. He'll figure out how to close the door. Well, I mean, he doesn't have to figure it out. You know what I mean. <laughs> God's going to close the door, and God already knows he's going to close the door. So I would say a principle, a principle from this is God expects us to do what, we're, what he's given us. Maybe that's a, the best way to think about it. God expects us to do the things he's given us the capacity to do. Not just that we possess the capacity. He's given us the capacity. And then he takes care of everything we don't have the capacity to do. All right. Second, second example. Um, let's turn over to Exodus chapter 3. I don't know if I've done it yet, but I always get Noah and Moses mixed up. If I've said Moses when I was talking about Noah, I didn't mean to because now we're going to talk about Moses. And I'm probably going to say Noah. <laughs> But we're not talking about Noah. I'm done with Noah. We're talking about Moses. Exodus chapter 3, um, verses 1 through 10. And this actually came up in class, I think, uh, a week or two ago. Um, Exodus 3, I'll, I'll start reading in verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he, he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. 
So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have, heard, have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. All right, so far so good, right? Moses is probably ready to throw a party. If, if God stops here, Moses is like, this is the best news I've heard in my entire life. You're here to deliver your people. This, that is awesome in the proper use of the word. <laughs> that is awesome. But he doesn't stop there. We, we have verse 10. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And again, most of you already know the back and forth Moses has with God at this point. I mean, we, it, verse 8 is very clear. God says, I have come down to deliver my people and I will, I will give them a land. Right? So why send Moses to Pharaoh? And I'm not saying we have that answer in, in, in its entirety in the text, but I'm saying this is a question you need to ask of the text, right? So that you don't take some kind of position or, or view of God that where you're binding on him what he's supposed to do. Because God is making this choice. Moses didn't elect himself. Moses, Moses tried to get out of it and, and didn't get out of it, right? God decided this is how it's going to be done, and he did it. But it's a fair question. It's, I mean, a fair intellectual question. I don't mean it's fair to like question God's methods. I mean, on an intellectual basis, it's fair to say, why didn't God go to Egypt, pick them up? Go to Canaan, set them down. Right? I guarantee you he could have done that. He could have done that. Oh, but there's all those bad people in Canaan. You know what? God could have taken like a, a giant squeegee. He's going to squeegee it all with Canaan. He could have gotten rid of all those people. We read in, I think it's, I think it's Joshua, where God says, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to get rid of all the people all at once because the land would kind of go to seed and the animals would, the wild animals would take over. Why? Can't God prevent wild animals from taking over? <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? God says, I'm going to slowly drive them out before you so that when you come into the land and the land that you take, it's still been cultivated and it's still good for you to use and all the vines are, are trimmed and they're proper. Well, that does, still doesn't answer the question for me, right? Intellectually, right? Just an intellectual question. 
if God wanted to place the Israelites completely spread out through the land in places that had vines and fig trees and everything set up the way and it's ready to go, God could have prevented the land from going to seed. He could have prevented wild animals from taking over the land. I know he could because he spoke those things into existence. He didn't do that. That's the important thing, right? The questions aren't the important thing. The important thing is he didn't do that. So there's something for us to learn. Not just about God, like, oh, I'm learning about God. He likes to use his people. No. It's the other way around. I'm one of his people. What does that mean for me? And, I mean, James read Ephesians 2. He gave, he gave the whole lesson away. I did that intentionally. The answer is in Ephesians 2. We'll get to that. So there's all kinds of questions. Why must Moses go to Pharaoh? Why must Aaron be his mouthpiece? You know, why, why didn't God just appear in the burning bush to Pharaoh? I mean, if we're going to go through all of these stages, right, why, why didn't God do this? Why didn't God do that? Why didn't he do that? Why did he use ten plagues? Why didn't he use one? Why didn't he use the death of the firstborn as the third plague? I mean, and again, there's intellectual interesting questions. God, was, and he, God himself says, I was judging the gods of Egypt. I was pronouncing judgment on the gods of Egypt. He says that. So we're given that answer as to why maybe he used so many plagues. Right? Why were there even acts to initiate the plagues? Right? God says, raise your staff and speak this, or grab some, grab some uh, uh, dust from the kilns and throw it in the air. And the dust became gnats, and gnats covered the land. In every one of these cases, it's not God's weakness that's requiring these things. It's God requesting his people or his person to act and obey, to do something. Turn over to Exodus chapter 11. We're about to move on from this. Exodus 11. Look in verse 3. Exodus 11.3, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. There's maybe an answer there, right? God acted through Moses to give the people a leader. All of these things is made Moses esteemed among the people. And I think this is a very real, and what I mean by real, like fundamental to human nature kind of thing. We don't just esteem. It takes some work for someone to be esteemed by a, a human. I mean, there are people who are led astray, right? But they esteem because of sight. Oh, this person is wearing nice clothes and gold, so esteem is very quick for maybe for them, right? But I think for most of us, esteem is like, well, who are you? What? What is your purpose in life, right? 
All of these things God had Moses do created esteem among the people for him. So maybe there's an answer there. Moses would have had no esteem. God had picked all these people up, set them in Canaan. Moses is just walking around with sheep in the wilderness. There's no esteem. There's no... These people might esteem God, but man, when you look at what they did in the wilderness, it didn't seem like they esteemed God very much. So maybe God knew, hey, you know what? They'll esteem a man, and I'm going to use that. That's possible. But what's important is God used a man. He used the agency of of a human. Let's turn over to Judges chapter 7. This is our last Old Testament example. Judges chapter 7. And again, I think this is a relatively well-known account of Gideon. Um, I'll, I'll read the first, uh, what do we got? First eight verses. Judges 7, verses 1 through 8. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. Okay, they're going out to battle. They're getting ready for battle. They, they rose up. They're going out um, to, to meet the Midianites. Camp beside the spring of Herod. And the camp, came, the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. All right, so we know he started with 32,000. And God's like, That's too many. You know, I got to pare this down. Tell all, tell all those people who are afraid to go home. So two-thirds go home. 22,000 go home. He's got 10,000 left. Verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water. I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as the dog laps as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest kneeled to drink the water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped, and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets in their hands. Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. All right. So now we see God using the agency of his people, the agency of mankind. But he doesn't want it to be big. He wants it to be small. He says there's too many. Um, Turn over to chapter 8, verse 10. Let's just get an idea of the size of the Midianite army. I mean, okay, I would get it like if Israel shows up with 32,000 men, the Midianites are 5,000 men, God's like, no. You won't see me in this. Because you would think, well, it's just natural. 32,000 beats 5,000 by six times, right? So look at, look at eight, 8, chapter 10. I'm sorry, uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 10. This is the end of the battle, right? Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor, and their armies, armies with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east. For the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. 
you've got a battle as it starts, 32,000 against 135,000. And then God says, send those people who are afraid home. You've got 10,000 versus 135,000. And God says, that's too many. I mean, from human perspective, that's not too many. No one would go to battle without God, right? You would not go to battle 10,000 against 135,000. I don't care how high your ground is, right? You might defend yourself because you had to. But to go to battle? God says 300. That's the right number. Against 135,000. You guys know where I'm going with this. <laughs> Why? If you're not going to send 32,000, if you're not going to send 10,000, why send 300? Why send Gideon? I mean, we know in another text an angel slew 185,000 in a camp. One single angel in one night slew 185,000. It's way past this, right? It's in the time of the divided kingdom. I mean, just send an angel down there. Right? The question isn't the important thing. The important thing is God didn't do that. He said to these 300 men, you go into battle against 135,000 men and I'm going to deliver you. God won the battle, but these men had to go into battle. I, for me, I'm, I'm telling you, this is when I first put, I put this lesson together like 12 years ago because it, it just it's one of these things about God his character in the text that just flabbergasts me he consistently I won't say forces requires men to act for him to act consistent God is the same yesterday today and forever and he, he he's always done that but it's fascinating to me he bends his will. He restricts his own will, right? And says, all right, yeah, I could wipe these guys out, but you need to send 300 in. I'm and the reason I'm bringing all this up, I believe he's, he does that today. I'm not talking about building arcs and going to battle. I'm saying living as a Christian. I'm convinced he does that today. We're going to move into the New Testament and look at a few examples now. And then we'll be done. Look in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. You guys know what's going on in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is being poured out on men. The prophecy of Joel is being fulfilled right here. When the day of Pente uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred... The crowd came together. 
They were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. I'm not going to belabor the point, but you guys know where I'm going this. Why does the Holy Spirit just speak to them? <laughs> he can create the sound of a rushing wind because they heard that. That's audible. He can create tongues of fire. That's visual. If he speaks through men, why can't he speak to men? Well, we know he speaks to men. We're going to get to an example of that in just a second. Right? Why didn't the Holy Spirit just come down as a dove or in whatever form? doesn't matter. And audibly tell these people in their own language, you killed the Christ. And it was part of God's plan. Right? Peter tells them that. Could have delivered the message. I mean, you could argue he delivered it better than Peter, but maybe not. I mean, Peter, I mean, it was pretty clean. I mean, it was a pretty well-delivered message. But Peter doesn't know God's mind better than God knows his own mind. Why doesn't God speak for himself? Again, the question, is, the question isn't important. What, what he actually did is important. He said... All of these people in Jerusalem, they're going to hear from the mouths of men the gospel. They're going to hear from the mouths of men. I mean people, but in this case men. But he's, he's using human agency when he didn't have to. And what I mean by have to is like a, he wasn't bound. Oh, I can't communicate unless I communicate through humans. No, that's not true. Stay in Acts. Look in Acts chapter 8. I'm sorry. No, Acts chapter, Acts chapter 9. We only have two more examples. Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10. We'll be done. Acts chapter 9. Verses. Well, I'm not going to read all of this. I'll, 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 uh, I'll read verse 3. To, 3 and 4. Uh, 3 through 6 to introduce this. As he was traveling, this is Saul of Tarsus, right? He's on his way to Damascus. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Why didn't Jesus tell him what he must do? Look, look down in verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord, said, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. For he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 15, the Lord said, Go to him, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Who's Ananias? Why? What's the point? Jesus himself is appearing to two separate people in this account, and he's not telling them any, he's not telling Saul how to be saved. I mean, you realize that, right? Like, you see that. 
All he's doing is he's saying, hey, I'm Jesus. Like, you're blind now. You need to, you need to sober up. Get in Damascus. It will be told you. It wasn't told him by the Spirit or by Jesus. It was told him out of the mouth of a man what he must do. I mean, to Ananias' credit, he didn't say, well, why don't you go? <laughs> I mean, and I don't, again, not in a disrespecting manner, but in a real questioning manner. I, you know where he is. You know he's here, and you have a job for him. Like, I don't understand. Like, why aren't you telling him all of this stuff? He, Ananias didn't do that. And, I, and I, do, I really do mean that's to his credit. Jesus said, go, and he went, right? What's important for us in this, in this lesson that I'm trying to draw out here is that Jesus required the agency of a man to do that. I don't mean required that he was bound. Required it from his own will. This is how I work. All right, final example. Acts chapter 10. This is the one that just, I mean, I probably should have just, I could have started with Acts 10 and we'd have the whole lesson in one example. Um, look in verse 1, okay? Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, gave many alms to the Jewish people, prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Angel did not tell him how to be saved. I mean, we're not going to read all of this, but we have next in the account, we have a vision, right, given to Peter. Cheat down. Peter, rise and kill. No, they're unclean. Three times. Right? Now, verse 17, while Peter was greatly perplexed what the vision might mean, these men came from Cornelius. Look in verse 19. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. All right, so even though Cornelius says it was an angel who appeared to him, the Spirit says, I sent these men. And now the Spirit says to Peter, Hey, go down and talk to these people. Now we have angel and the Spirit interacting no one's been told how to be saved. I mean, it's like this massive... I mean, if you think about it, it's like this massive kind of chess match. Like, oh, we've got to get all these pieces in place. But, you know, I mean, by the Spirit. And I don't mean they're figuring it out. I mean, they're working these things, right? The Spirit says, all right, angel, you do this. The Spirit says, I'm going to do this. The entire time, all they have to do is say, Hey, Cornelius, you need to be baptized. Never once does that happen. Never once does it happen. This is the, 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 the final part is at the end of chapter 10. Verse 
verse 44, Peter's delivering the message, telling him about Jesus, right? Them, the several people had gathered, telling them about Jesus, right? Verse, uh, verse 43 is the, the last thing he says, of him being Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. All right, so he's told him, them, he's told them, Jesus is the one through whom you receive forgiveness of sins. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter said, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to stay on for a few days. The Spirit didn't even tell Peter, Hey, Peter, I want you to baptize Gentiles. I know it's a very nuanced point, but it's... You've got to remember, like, coming from an engineer perspective, like, I just lay out facts, and I expect people to interpret the facts and just get on with life, right? I'm just like, I spell out the facts. I'm like, here's the facts. Now you go take the facts, and you do what you're supposed to do with facts, right? The Spirit does not do that. The Spirit shows this sheet thing to Peter three times, and then he says, now go with these Gentiles, and Peter's kind of like working it out. He gets there at the beginning of the sermon. He's like, okay, I know God has now told me not to treat as unclean. I'm not supposed to be here. But I'm not supposed to treat you as common, right? So I, I, I've picked that much up, right? But now the Spirit still has to fall on these people to demonstrate, hey, I want you to baptize Gentiles. And they look around, you know, the, the Jews, they kind of look at each other and like, this is legit. This is from the Spirit. But the Spirit never whispered, hey, baptize these people. He forced Peter to arrive at the conclusion on his own. So what is the point? We've looked at all these examples. What is the point? Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and just look at this again. Because I think the point is Ephesians chapter 2. He begins the chapter by telling them kind of where they were and how they've, how they've been pulled out of death and pulled out of sin. Right? Well, that's, all, that's all great, right? Verse 8 is kind of the, the end of that, that part where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. He, he, he doesn't explain all the nuances, but he says, Hey, your faith worked with the grace because without the grace your faith is meaningless and without faith the grace is not, has no power. By grace you were saved through faith, Right? Why? There's lots of answers to that question, but what, what answer is given here? <laughs> what answer is given here? Not as a result of work so that no man would boast. Verse 10 is the why. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The works were actually prepared before we were saved. You see that? God says, I've got a whole bevy of works and I've got no one to do it because they're all a bunch of sinners. They've all rebelled against me. They've all gone their own path.
So, I'm going to send my son. And those who have faith in him, they'll be prepared for these good works. I'll recreate them so that they can actually do these good works. I don't, I don't have it in my notes here, but you remember when the, the Jews, I think that maybe it was John 6. I mean, I don't know. The Jews said, well, what works do we do to be saved? And he said, the works that you do is to believe. Ephesians 2.10 shows you what believing looks like. What does it look like in my life? Well, it says, you know what? God isn't going to feed this homeless person. I'm going to feed this homeless person. God isn't going to whisper in this person's ear that they're following a false teaching. I'm going to sit down with Scripture and I'm going to show them that they're following a false teaching. The reason I'm convinced that that is truth from Scripture is because every example in Scripture of how God uses His people is that they must use their capacity that He's given them to do. I have the capacity to do both of those things. I have the capacity to fill physical needs for people, brethren or not, and therefore it's on me to do it. That's the conclusion I draw from all of these examples. I have the capacity to open up Scripture and show someone truth to counter a false teaching. If I have the capacity to do that, it's on me to do it. It's on me to do it. Now, I know myself, so I know what capacities I have, right? And to be frank, I'm scared to realize some of the capacities I have because I don't want to go do those things. I don't mean these two things. I mean the things that I'm, right, that I'm afraid to do in my mind. But we need to be sober and honest with ourselves about what we have the capacity to do. Some of you have capacity for compassion. I I do not comprehend. (laughs) I mean, I love it when I receive compassion. But I've seen people show compassion and patience that are light years beyond what I've developed in my own life. Well, you know what? Go out and be patient and compassionate with people. You have that capacity. Wield it. Like constantly. Do it. Look for ways to do it. Be patient and compassionate with me. Don't let me get by with stuff. You know what I'm saying? So, the point of this text, what I, or the point of this whole lesson, what I'm, I want everyone to take away, is to think about Ephesians 2.10. The reason God didn't take you the moment you were saved and plant you in heaven was because he recreated you for something here. That's to do good works. And then not something you dream up in your head, Right, you go here, Second Timothy 3. Scripture right, prepares you for every good work. There's no good work you can do that Scripture doesn't prepare you for. Second Timothy 3. I challenge you on that one. So, get in here. 
Match your capabilities with preparation and do good works. That's what we're supposed to do. Okay, I've spoken way too much, but you guys can tell the reason I'm passionate about this is because this is a major failing in my life. It's something I've been fighting. Like I said, I prepared this lesson 12 years ago. Something I've been fighting within myself for many years is what am I supposed to do now that I'm still breathing here on this earth? Well, those are the things you're supposed to do. What God has given you the capabilities to do. But it doesn't matter if you do any of those things if you're not in His Son. None of that stuff, like, gets you into Christ. I mean, feeding people who are hungry, that's great. They're going to be hungry tomorrow too. Explaining to people who are in error, they're going to ask you, well, why haven't you obeyed? Right? Teaching the truth without obeying the truth is very dangerous. Come off as a hypocrite. So don't do that. If you need to be in the sun, if you need to get in the sun, or if you've obeyed and you've said, no, I'm going to follow my own path, and you need to get back into that relationship with him, these are the people to talk to about that. Not because we're elevated above everyone else in your life, but because we care enough about you right, to sit down and listen, to study, to do whatever it takes for you and him to be in the relationship he, he desires. It's not about a relationship with me or with this church. So we're going to sing a song now. The purpose of the song is to encourage you to think about your state and your relationship with God and whether you need to restore that or initiate that. Let's stand as we sing.